0: Hi everyone, my name is Nick Harris and I am a fellow in the Middle East Security Program at the Center for New American Security. The Middle East Security Program is wrapping up a year-long project where we investigated different policy options for the U.S. as it charts out a new approach to the Syrian crisis. In particular, our study investigated how the U.S. could leverage Syria's fragmentation In a way that it could affect an outcome that benefits the United States and the broader international community. We are conducting a series of podcasts that look at some of the thornier issues that have impacted U.S. policy towards Syria since 2011. Well, everyone, today we are fortunate to be joined by an all-star panel. First we have Jennifer, aka Jenny Caffarella, who is the Research Director at the Institute for the Study of War. A nonprofit organization that performs unclassified research of threats to U.S. national security. Jenny is a Syria expert and conducted granular analysis of ISIS and Al Qaeda's local operations as part of her work. She regularly briefs policymakers in D.C. and advises American military units deploying abroad. We're also joined today by Sasha Ghosh who who is the executive director and co founder of People Demand Change Incorporation a grassroots aid and development firm focused on supporting accountability and transparency within the humanitarian and development field through effective monitoring and evaluation work. Sasha is a real expert on Syria. He has more than a decade of experience focusing on the country, and most importantly, he and PDC are partners for our report. And last but not least is Hassan Hassan, who is the director of non-state actors in fragile environments? A program at the Center for Global Policy. Hassan is a world-renowned scholar on ISIS, Al Qaeda, and other Salafi, jihadi extremist movements. He's a New York Times best-selling author and is a contributing writer at The Atlantic. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for today's episode. I'm joined here by Jenny, Sasha, and Hassan, and we'll talk about CT in Syria. Is it more than just contain and drone? So I'd like to kick off to the group. Um, one of, the, one of the, the biggest dilemmas that we face when we think about Syria is that it's been the largest recruiting ground for Salafist jihadist organizations, likely in modern history. My question to you is, and I want to start off with Jenny, can you actually describe the impact that the Syrian conflict has had? on the global Salafi jihadist movement, and what has it done for the capabilities of these groups?
1: Sure, and thanks, Nick, for the opportunity to join this podcast. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. I think the impact that the Syrian conflict has had on the global Salafi jihadist movement is strongest with respect to enabling groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda to claim a source of legitimacy and even to make an ethical argument by resisting the oppression of Bashar al-Assad. The level of brutality that Bashar al-Assad has been able to inflict against his population is completely appalling, as is the lack of an international response to protect Syrians. And I think that, in my view, is the near-unprecedented opportunity that both ISIS and al-Qaeda have been able to exploit especially given how public and on social media and broadcasted this war has been. So the combination of the brutality and the lack sort of 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 any action to stop it, plus the level of publicity involved in the Syrian conflict overall has really provided a spark that these organizations have both unfortunately been able to harness pretty effectively.
0: Hassan, would you like to weigh in?
2: I think uh, Jenny uh, said it very well. Uh, i only want to uh, add that uh, as with other uh, parts of the region uh, uh, when we have broken societies uh, conflicts uh, these uh, problems emerge and never go away so if you think of libya syria and before that iraq and afghanistan and then now as well yemen uh, that's the sort of uh, uh, you know enablers and the kind of the fertile grounds for these uh, these jihadists Jihadi organizations exist in other areas, and they might be even more popular in some other countries. But these countries are uh, stable; they have they didn't see wars, uh, but, so these organizations remain underground, remain uh, kind of a very limited uh, threat. They only become big and uncontrollable uh, when when there is uh, when there's con- uh, conflict and broken societies, and uh, even broken states states that are unable to. Uh, function and operate and take control of uh, of those countries.
3: Yeah, I think the unfortunate part about the longevity of the Syrian conflict is that while the failures of the other revolutions across the Arab Spring meant that we've had sort of an upwelling of sentiment uh, where people voiced the need for having control over their lives and their futures, and that sentiment was either quashed or Um, Return to a semi status quo that provided some outlet for people to air their grievances without having serious change Um, the length of the conflict in syria means that people's frustrations can then be channeled towards syria so people can say well you can't fight um, in tunisia for changes but you can go to syria and you can fight a very brutal regime and continue fighting in a way that channels your anger, where you cannot channel that anger in your current domestic environment. And that's what makes Syria so complex, but also so dangerous as a conflict, and in terms of allowing it to continue on its current course.
1: I would just add to that, Uh, I definitely agree, and I think as the Syrian war has continued to become more international, with additional states becoming militarily involved, what Sasha has outlined becomes even more true because now Syria is also a theater where you can go to fight the Russians. And I think until and unless this conflict actually becomes less international and more contained, we're going to continue to see that globalization trend with respect to the jihadis escalate accordingly.
0: So I just want to pick up on that thread, and I think it's an important one, is you know we hear so much that there's a generation of jihad that has been mobilized by the Syrian conflict. There's a lot of chatter and discussion about the type of external attack network that ISIS in particular, but other groups like Al-Qaeda, have established outside of Syria, particularly in Western Europe, and unfortunately in allies such as Turkey. I want to ask you all, um, to what extent should we be worried about uh, Salafi jihadi external attack networks that have been established outside sure. of Syria.
1: so the ISIS organization launched two wars simultaneously. They launched the campaign, or they rather continued the campaign to resurge in Iraq and Syria, but they also sent their first external attack cells into Europe before actually ISIS even took Mosul. I think that's important to mention because sometimes there's a lack of clarity about when did ISIS quote unquote, go global and how long did it take? It actually was very, very, very fast. It's been a simultaneous campaign for ISIS this entire time. And I actually expect we're going to increasingly discover that when ISIS has seeded these global affiliates at different parts of the world, those global affiliates have waged similar simultaneous campaigns, both to generate local capability, but also then to plug back into the ISIS global attack campaign. The best example we have now is Libya, where we do know that ISIS has both tried with less success, thankfully, to generate local capability, but has also networked back into attack cells in Europe. And the ISIS capability in Libya has been linked to multiple reported attack attempt, multiple attack attempts, um, according to reports. So I think the dangerous reality we face now is that ISIS has already seeded those affiliates around the world. And I would submit to you that we don't yet know from unclassified sources just how many of the ISIS attack cells are still out there and are in a generation phase or a planning phase before attacks. And I think we could start to see more of those attack vectors operate with relative independence from the Syria and Iraq battlefield as ISIS establishes that forward presence.
0: Hassan, I want to ask you, how concerned are you about the external attack networks that Salafi jihadi groups have established?
2: Well, so it depends on what you mean by external. Uh, if, if the reference is to Europe and the West, uh, I, I think they are they will continue to be able to um, uh, project some some uh, power uh, or kind of some of the terrorist uh, uh, networks uh, uh, there if they wanted to uh, in my opinion though uh, i think it's my argument that uh, the that isis and other jihadis not just isis but al-qaeda and others will be increasingly focused on uh, what jenny has just said seeding them themselves in the region uh, focusing more and concentrating their energy on uh, planting themselves in local uh, you know uh, environment so ISIS, for the longest, for, for the best part of its history, was a local Iraqi organization, meaning it was focused in Iraq, even though it had, uh, obviously, affiliation to al-Qaeda uh, in its early years, uh, but for the most part, it was, an, uh, first and foremost, an Iraqi organization. Uh, the exception was 2014 and 2015, when ISIS started to lash out and kind of project itself as an international global organization uh, because uh, it anna- announced the caliphate, because it expanded into Syria and wanted to appeal to foreign fighters and uh, uh, recruits everywhere. Uh, I think that worked very well for it. I don't think ISIS regrets doing that because it has enabled it to uh, expand its brand from being just an Iraqi organization into a global organizational organization that would rival Al-Qaeda and compete with Al-Qaeda, against Al-Qaeda uh, uh, over the mantle of uh, global jihad and the leadership of global jihad. Now, I think uh, after the dem- territorial demise in Iraq and Syria, they're going to be focusing more on going back to their old roots, except this time they're not going to be just an Iraqi organization. But they're going to be a local organization in multiple countries uh, in the region under the banner of a caliphate. So they're going to be a local organization in Afghanistan, in Libya, in Yemen, uh, in Sinai, and elsewhere. And and uh, in my opinion, I think they were going to have more chance, uh, which is sort of paradoxical now, to build these uh, roots uh, in those countries than they had in 2014 and 2015 when they were just expanding and also when their focus was to uh, retaliate against countries that were attacking them.
3: Yeah, I think the um, maybe a mistake that the wider global CT community makes is that it looks at these extremist movements as a fundamentalist and regressionist movement incapable of learning. And therefore it's going to do the same thing over and over and over again but what we've learned whether it's watching isis or even al-qaeda's affiliate Jabhat al-nusra now hts in syria is that these groups evolve and as they're evolving they're learning what strategies tactics paired with ideology work best in order to sustain uh, their movements and allow them to thrive so if that means on the one hand becoming more localized and focusing on the middle east and showing um the sort of ideological hypocrisy of many of the dictatorships around the region and then using that to fuel their movements they'll do that Um, but then also using technology in a way that they've been very effective in pushing people to adopt their ideology without having to provide any real resources to those groups so it's not like they need to create cells quote unquote anymore they just need to convince people via social media and via technology that their worldview is uh, correct and that there's a global conspiracy uh, against, quote unquote, global conspiracy against Muslims or against people from the Middle East. And this global conspiracy is real. And you can see that by the lack of inaction over um, protecting civilians in Syria as one example.
0: So I want to kind of double down on this point because I think it's very interesting that what we've seen in Syria that a lot of these Salafi jihadist organizations want to recruit locally. They want Syrians to become part of their organizations. They want to have the community cover. They want to have the ability to, to regenerate their ranks, to have regenerative jihad. And there is this sort of active debate, and there has been over the course of the Syrian civil war, about the extent to which organizations like Hayat Tahrir al Sham, before Jabhat al Nusra, or ISIS. You know can be called syrian and then one of the ways that people tried to distinguish between the syrian opposition movement and syrian communities and these organizations was to say these organizations were more foreign-led more foreign-backed and not syrian but we've seen over the course of the war that that in fact isn't the case that these organizations have survived and have built have built up large networks because they've recruited successfully locally so my question to you all is you know how 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 deeply are these Salafi Jihadi organizations woven into the social, cultural, and political fabric of the local communities that, where they exist in Syria, and is there any way to reverse that? Hassan, can I start with you? Uh, sure.
2: I think it, var- it, var- it varies, it's not always um, as clear-cut as uh, I would uh, hope that it uh, is. So, for example, uh, I see al- ISIS as uh, first and foremost an Iraqi led organization. Uh, so, it's really, uh, you know, as the Pentagon recently concluded in a report, uh, that ISIS is, re- is regenerating faster and generating their uh, local cap- uh, capabilities faster in Iraq at a faster pace than in Syria. I think the reason for that is one, because uh, uh, ISIS was uh, expelled from much of Iraq early on, so it had it had the chance and the time to rebuild itself and recover in some parts of Iraq, uh, especially in, in the west, uh, northwest and um, central Iraq. Um, but also because ISIS has more and longer experience in Iraq uh, than, say, in Syria. Uh, that might change with time, but that's... That's, uh, I think, that one reason why ISIS uh, is, is uh, uh, better entrenched. Uh, sorry, uh, ISIS is uh, sort of recovering in Iraq is because it's better, more entrenched in Iraq. And Nusra, or what's known now as hayat al sham is more Syrian. Uh, it had roots in the 1970s and 80s uh, insurgency in, in Syria, and much of its leadership and uh, rank and file, and even memory, and the way they operate, the way they think about the syrian conflict is really shaped by the memory of the of that insurgency that many scholars over the decades thought it, it was dead because i uh, have defeated it in the in, in 1982. Uh, so uh it's uh, I, I would imagine it's a mixed uh, answer one is uh, they are uh, locally they, they have been able to uh, recruit locally and trench themselves locally but i think uh, each Country uh, has experience uh, with different groups and uh, groups that have uh, longer roots uh, tend to stay longer because they are uh, they were not new to the conflict that uh, that happened in 2011.
3: Yeah, I would say you know whether it's transnational white power movements, um, transnational uh, fundamentalist jihadist movements. All of these extremist uh, movements have ideologies that transcend geography and, uh, and, tr- and that allows them to be both simultaneously local and international at the same time. And so whereas before you needed uh, to physically have people meet in person to exchange ideas and concepts and potentially resources, um, a lot of that is done digitally and that has allowed people to remain local and focus on local issues that they know will play well but while taking ideas or, um, or um, concepts that worked in another locale or another country and attempt to modify it and then use it in their locale and see if that works uh, just as effectively. And if it doesn't, they'll try something else. And I think that's the problem that uh, the global community is facing is the ability to transmit ideas and information and frankly, resources with very little person to person interaction, which makes tracking these groups and tracking their capacity to influence uh, across a wide spectrum of space uh, so much more difficult these days.
1: Yeah, I would add uh, that in, in the Syrian example, Jabhat al-Nusra or now Hayat al sham has been very successful in prioritizing the local and establishing a narrative based on fact, frankly, that they are one of the strongest defenders of the Syrian rebellion against Bashar al-Assad. That's not actually a messaging problem from the US standpoint, that's a reality problem. We're on year nine of this war. Abu Muhammad al-Jalani and his gang have been there since the start, effectively, and they've been fighting hard and taking very big losses. But I think it's important, nonetheless, to recognize that Syrians are incredibly resilient. And part of Al-Qaeda's rise inside of Syria has been a product of a military campaign that that Al-Qaeda affiliate has waged against other armed actors within the rebellion. So it's not like they just entered the Syrian conflict and started fighting Assad and suddenly gained all of these followers. They've had to fight really hard, actually, to defeat competitors inside of Syria. And that that should give us hope. It also should point us to the requirement of the solution, which is Al-Qaeda has already identified what threatens it the most. And it's the existence of an alternative, which is why al-Qaeda has fought so hard to destroy that alternative. It's also, by the way, why Assad and his backers have destroyed that alternative, because they know that if they feel al-Qaeda's rise, the West will at least at minimum despair over the lack of options, if not give up entirely. But it's that despair inside of Syria that I actually think is most problematic from a CT perspective moving forward. Because... I'm not personally worried right now at year nine that Al-Qaeda is convincing hundreds and thousands of Syrians to participate in suicide attacks in Europe. Like that, That's not where we are. We could be there at year 18. I have no idea. Right. God forbid we get there. But what I am concerned that Al-Qaeda is increasingly gaining traction on is the argument that nobody stood up for Syrians against Assad. So why should Syrians risk their lives to fight al-Qaeda just to protect Europe or just to protect the United States? So there's no local incentive for Syrians to put their lives on the line right now, in my view, that is as strong as it needs to be to, to put constraints on al-Qaeda and to fight back. And it's that apathy, I think, that is the biggest window of opportunity for al-Qaeda moving forward.
3: Yeah, picking up on that, I think this is the most difficult thing um, to watch, uh, is that a lack of a clear, cogent U.S. policy towards Syria for the last nine years uh, means that um, we've just opened up a space by which all these other actors can come in and fill that void because there is no leadership. And so part of pushing back against extremist organizations means you need to be very committed to the side that you choose. You need to put support, you need to build um, the societal resilience required to face down these groups and say, no, I have an alternative and that alternative is safe. That alternative gives me a voice politically in my future. And that alternative is providing um, me and my community with the capacity to be engaged in a governance system that we trust and we believe we haven't been able to really see any of that materialize from either the united states or the wider international community in terms of syria it's or or even iraq it's been a hodgepodge um uh rea- reactive policy i've yet to see a proactive policy being implemented on the ground in either of those countries that would actually mitigate and forestall the um the The explosion of these groups on the ground into wider problems that we then say oh these problems are going to affect us and our national security Therefore we should go deal with them once we feel the threat is gone. We're leaving. No, we have to be willing to say the um, the um, well-being and welfare of these people is equal to our national security Because their well being and their stability is going to ensure our national security. And I don't see that the international community and the US government is there yet in terms of that comprehension.
1: Yeah, I just would like to add something uh, to the excellent point Sasha made, which is I'm very concerned that something dangerous has happened with the precedent we set in our counter ISIS campaign. Because the De facto decision that we made that I don't feel like we ever really acknowledged as a nation was that we're going to treat ISIS as if it has a military solution, where the solution is we kill a bunch of people and destroy a bunch of buildings. And determine that that was sufficient to, at minimum, address the biggest aspect of the ISIS threat. And I'm very worried about that because there can be no military solutions to these problems. In fact, the political aspects of this, the humanitarian aspects of this are far more important and a more reasonable and well-designed strategy would have used limited military force to create the conditions within which the political and humanitarian requirements can be fulfilled. And we almost did the inverse. We killed a bunch of people and destroyed a bunch of stuff and now we're looking to leave. But the US is still treating it as a success and I'm very worried about what that means because in the first instance, I don't think we'll be able to replicate it. But in the second, even if we tried that against Al Qaeda, I think it's going to go very, very, very dangerously in the opposite direction. And so I'm concerned as a nation that we learned the right lessons from the Syrian theater more broadly and that we avoid concluding that the counter ISIS campaign actually was a resounding victory. So
0: Jenny, I wanna pick up on that because this is gets to sort of the heart of the debate right now when it comes to US you know, C T policy in general. But in Syria we see this played out. You know, there are a lot of US national security experts that argue that the US is actually too invested in Syria and that it needs to re- regroup its law, regroup from Syria, and take resources that have been spent looking at Syria and obsessing over the CT challenges in Syria, and invest them in other areas of the Middle East or other parts of the world more broadly. So I want to ask you all: You know, what is the appropriate U.S. response to the challenge of Salafist jihadist organizations in Syria, and what resources should be devoted to overcome that challenge? Hassan, could I have you weigh in first?
2: Uh, Sure. So if we, I mean, uh, so we have to acknowledge that there is a milestone that has been achieved, which is the end of the physical caliphate in Iraq and Syria. That's a big deal. And that's a that's a military aspect that we have to think now beyond because even if even if uh, we accept uh, that there there was a need for a military action against this organization and only military organized kind of military aspect because obviously you can't do too many things at the same time considering uh, the lack of appetite to do anything more than that the problem now is uh, if you want to deal with the rest of the challenge that isis poses, and other organizations uh, organizations in Syria and, and elsewhere, in conflict areas especially, uh, you have to think uh, about politics and security, security measures to deal with these organizations, uh, deal with their sleeper cells, deal with their support networks, uh, deal with their uh, logistics, and so on and so forth, so you prevent them from operating with impunity underground. Um, and I think that needs to, uh, that's inter- intertwined with the politics because how do you connect with the locals so the locals don't uh, provide uh, space for these organizations to operate say in eastern syria northern iraq western iraq libya and elsewhere uh, you need to start thinking about uh, this at a time when we see governments in the west are uh, doing the opposite which is saying we have nothing to do with this uh, with these countries either. Uh, for political reasons, because they can no longer afford to go and uh, do more uh, in countries like Syria and elsewhere, or because they think the threat is now seeded, uh, and it's no longer uh, as big a threat, uh, an existential threat as it was, say, in 2014 2015. So that's one of the reasons why I think uh, pessimistically about this, uh, what's w- the road ahead. And I think these organizations are now, because they're focusing more on the locals, and the international community is increasingly not focusing on the local uh, context in which these organizations operate, uh, I only see negative uh, trends going, uh, moving forward. I think these organizations will be able to comfortably uh, entrench themselves in different parts of the region, from Afghanistan all the way to West
3: Africa. Yeah, I think one of the bigger lessons that we still, as a international community, don't either want to learn or we just have it internalized is that... Uh, authoritarianism totalitarianism breeds extremism so long as we continue to turn a blind eye to the authoritarian uh, governance structures that are that prevail within the the Middle East and North Africa region we're going to have a problem with extremism because it's going to be the number one way in which these groups can recruit locally and with an air of legitimacy is to say look at the repression that we face day to day look at the massive amounts of corruption we as people have to deal with day to day tell me why the international community continues to support these governance structures tell me why no one has no one bothered to really support the revolutions of the 2011 arab spring in a way that resulted in us being truly free and having i won't say democratic governance but to have a political voice in our future And that's a big challenge that we're going to have to reconcile with if we don't want this to be like a five to ten year cycle of of recurring extremism popping up, becoming a uh, existential threat to Europe and the West's national security. We put it down, then we leave, then the same cycle happens over and over again.
1: Yeah, I would add that I think there's a understandable and perhaps even important desire to preserve American resources, and for lack of a better way of phrasing it, cut down on our investments abroad. I think that there's a very sound argument to be made, but the problem I see is that one of the fastest ways to end up with a never-ending commitment that costs an extraordinary amount of money over time and resources over time, is actually to underestimate the requirements at the outset for what the mission requires. And I think we're relatively good as a nation in discussing the risks to our forces or the risks to the homeland. I think we need to get better at discussing the risks to success of whatever we're trying to accomplish and facing some of the hard realities where if you're not willing to invest the resources necessary to succeed, then you have to accept something other than success. But when faced with realities other than success, we end up routinely deciding, well, no, we're going to continue actually to invest because we don't like the alternate outcome. And until we break that cycle and until we can be honest with ourselves and the nation about what success requires, I I fear that we're going to be in this vicious cycle in Afghanistan and and probably in Iraq and Syria for the foreseeable future.
0: Well, so Jenny, can I pick up on that point? I think this is something that's, been very difficult to just sort of nail down throughout the policy discussion, whether in the years that have followed September 11, 2001, is what does success look like when you confront selfish, jihadist, violent extremist organizations? And we hear all these different phrases that have developed over the years. I mean, the subject of this discussion is contain and drone. And that comes from a phrase that I've heard here in Washington. You've also heard uh, you know, mow the grass, which implies you go, after you go after threats as they come I've also heard pick in the weeds and so when it comes down to it fundamentally I want to ask you all what does success look like in Syria against Southist jihadist groups
1: look I would just start by offering the reflection that all of those phrases are forever wars every one of them and I would submit to you that the future I would like to see is that we win and come home and stop doing this. And that that victory is sufficiently enduring that it provides the local populations the future that they deserve, and it constrains for the foreseeable future, the ability of these organizations to research. I don't think that that outcome is impossible. I just think that we've gotten ourselves so turned around on defining the problem based on what resources we want to spend that we've lost sight of it, and therefore we've stopped planning for it. And we've instead defaulted to these arguments that on the surface minimize our resources, right? We're just gonna drone them, but forever. And I I actually think that first it won't succeed, it won't contain the threat, and B, I'm I'm really not thrilled about the idea of continuing to fight this war forever.
0: Hassan, I wanna ask you, how would you define success against these organizations in Syria?
2: Uh, well, goodness, that's a very tough question because uh, it depends. So uh, there is, uh, for, from a Western perspective, I think the problem has been that we don't know the, what the problem is. Like uh, on one hand, sometimes you say there's there's no interest in the Middle East. We're, n- we're not interested in the Middle East. And then suddenly when there's a big problem, like when, the, when say, the Middle East starts sorting itself out, uh, so the rise of ISIS could be seen as, was uh, some part of Syria and Iraq trying to sort itself, or the, the, you know, uh, themselves out uh, by uh, one group defeating the others and, and kind of carving out a specific area uh, to create some new realities and new facts on the ground. And then suddenly, the whole world is uh, obviously organized uh, for the right reason uh, against this organization. And then, after you defeat it, you don't want to do anything more than that. We don't like in the West. we uh, they don't do. Uh, they don't want to do anything further than just a military defeat. And then uh, it's like the first. Uh, so it's like the movie, uh, the 51st date Every time they come and fight, and then they forget what happened after that. Uh, you know, the last time, and then continues endlessly uh, in the same, the same way. We 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 repeat the same uh, scenarios, the same errors, and same uh, and the same. Um, Uh, mistakes every now and then uh, every now and then that's why over the past 18 years uh, when it comes to the war on terror we only see uh, the uh, problem with jihadism becoming more and more of a problem rather than uh, dealt with uh, in in those countries now from a personal perspective i think success would be to stabilize syria uh, meaning the the end goal should be a political settlement between uh, the Syrian government and other parts of Syria uh, to stabilize the area and create a new form of governance away from uh, autocracy, from the way the Syrian regime uh, um, uh, governed over the past uh, four uh, for decades. So how do we do that? Who's willing to do what it takes to do that? And I don't think anybody is willing to do that.
0: No, and that's, you know, and Hassan, that sets us up, I think, very well, to delve into the, one of the thorniest issues that confronts the United States and Syria, which is what exactly to do with this large zone that it has amassed inside of Nor- in Syria. Almost one third of the country in northern and eastern Syria is under the control of the US-led coalition and its local Syrian partners, the Syrian Democratic Forces and other groups. And you know, this is a tremendously large piece of territory. It provides potential leverage for the U.S. and its partners on the end state in Syria. However, there's always been this dilemma, the dilemma being you know, who do you hand over this zone to, especially because the United States has maintained uh, throughout the course of the conflict that it doesn't want to hand over this territory back to the Assad regime. And it doesn't believe that Assad and his allies have the capability to prevent the return of ISIS or successor organization. So I want to ask you, Sasha, Now, how would you confront this handover dilemma that the U.S. faces?
3: So I think that a handover or a potential discussion of a handover to the Assad regime is just a non-starter. I think any sort of handover without a comprehensive political solution to the Syrian conflict is a recipe for disaster. Number one, because the way in which the Assad regime works and operates. If we see what they've been doing in Deraa and Southwest Syria since they took control of that area and all of the deals they broke with the rebels there that agreed to normalize their relationship with the regime, it does not bode well for what would happen in, um, in, the, in Northeast Syria where the United States and its allies are currently in control. And then the other problem, ultimately is is like uh syrians um to have nine years of conflict in which assad and his cronies and the political class that have at least half a million people's blood on their hands continue to be part of that political process i just think would be a lot for people to bear and i think if we're going to move forward we can have a political process that doesn't um, necessarily dismantle the Syrian state but it cannot include the uh, Assad, his family and the um, military and intelligence officers who helped kill all these people. I think that would be a very difficult pill for a lot of people to swallow and it would also ensure frankly that all of the Syrian refugees that are out of the country probably will never consider returning to Syria which sets up larger Um, demographic questions and problems for the wider region going forward if they have to um, consider hosting their Syrian refugee populations for the the foreseeable next 20 to 30 years.
1: Sure. I, I really have a hard time understanding the logic behind the proposal of handing over our victory to a brutal mass murderer who has been on the state sponsor of terrorism list for a very long time who has deliberately used jihadis as a tool of foreign policy, at least once before in Iraq, to say nothing about what the regime has done in Lebanon, historically. Uh, And so I think that it really is hard to imagine a future where this regime behaves any differently after achieving a victory against its own population that probably amounts to crimes against humanity that the West just tolerated. And for us then to imagine that that regime will be constrained in some way from exporting further violence throughout the region and probably throughout Europe. I mean, I I think we just have to not lose sight of who we're talking about here and what would be necessary to change the behavior of this regime. Which is another phrase that gets thrown around here in Washington a lot as if if we make the regime poor its behavior will change I don't understand that either this is a regime whose slogan is Assad or we burn the country and then deliberately exterminated or displaced half of the population there's there's no basis in fact in actual behavior to imagine that this regime will change and so no I don't support handing over our very hard fought victory against a brutal and oppressive, tyrannical organization to another brutal and oppressive, tyrannical organization.
3: Look, I, I think one of the things that we we have forgotten as well, um, just because we don't we the focus has been on the counter ISIS mission, is that we have a UN mandated political process via Geneva. Um, this process has been underutilized, to say the least, and I think that if the United States continues to put resources into the stabilization of Northeast Syria and provides an alternative to what the rest of Syria lives under it will create pressure internal societal pressure within the regime to change that could result in the changing of the leadership to a less uh, caustic and uh, brutal a group of people who may be in charge of the regime held territories it could result in iran and russia realizing that they will have to stay for decades in order to realize their ambitions and they may decide that they don't want to spend that kind of money and energy and that they need to come to the bargaining table and i think ultimately it's going to be a combination of pressures that's going to force everyone to come back to the table and hash out Uh, basically a new social compact between whatever governance structure would emerge and the Syrian people themselves.
0: Well, Hassan, I want to give you the last word on this topic as as a native of northern and eastern Syria and as someone who focuses professionally on this issue of counterterrorism. How would you confront the handover dilemma that faces the United States?
2: So the the way I look at it, I agree exactly with what uh, Jenny and Sasha said but I just want to add uh, another aspect, another dimension to it, which is the practical, the practicality of handing over an area, uh, uh, Eastern Syria, which is one third of the country, into, uh, you know, to, to the Syrian government in Damascus. The problem with that is uh, the Syrian regime cannot go and uh, stabilize these areas. So it's not it's, it's it's not the it's not because of politics. It's not because of what Bashar did and did not do, only. It's also because the regime of Bashar Assad is unable to go and rule these areas and stabilize them for uh, the West. Uh, So the Jihadis will not come back. Uh, uh, You only have to look at Uh, Daraa. Daraa was liberated uh, supposedly from uh, like a regime, the regime language uh, uh, a year ago. And the the problems in Daraa could provide sort of uh, an idea of what could happen if the regime comes back to uh, Eastern Syria. The area is not stable. Uh, I think there are some signs already emerging of, uh, uh, you know, uh, in, uh, instability and sort of, sort of growth of uh, uh, extremist organizations and others uh, becoming slowly but, like, even quietly uh, active in, in those areas. Uh, it's not a good model uh, to follow in Eastern Syria. And Eastern Syria is much bigger than. Uh, yeah. than Dara. And then uh, another example to have in mind is Kirkuk in Iraq. Uh, when that area was taken by the pro-government militias uh, after they expelled the Peshmerga uh, from from there and took over that, uh, you know, that city and that province, uh, we started to see a pattern since that moment, which was the resurgence of ISIS. Since then, ISIS has become active in those areas uh, because they had a space because of the uh, transition from one security forces, uh, one security force uh, into uh, another security force. The new security force might be more able, it could be very, uh, you know, could be uh, strong enough, but the transition alone, just the the sheer transition from one force to another makes it easier for jihadis to exploit gaps and, and start to operate so I think uh, eventually we will have to have a sort of a political settlement between uh, that third of Syria and the Syrian demo- uh, the, uh, Syrian government in Damascus but it has to be not a subordination to um, this uh, to Bashar I said but uh, through uh, sort of uh, decentralization a form of autonomy in those areas where these people uh, and these forces in Eastern Syria govern themselves and uh, be helped by outsiders to rebuild uh, build these, build these areas. Um, but, yeah, that one, uh, one aspect has to be uh, taken into, uh, into uh, account, which is the practicality. How capable is Bashar Assad and his regime uh, of stabilizing these areas?
0: Well, on that note, I want to thank you all for participating in this discussion. It has been quite robust and rich. Thanks again.